Simon Deakin, Director of the Centre for Business Research at Cambridge University. Simon Deakin, thank you very much indeed for talking to Centre for Business Research podcast series today and talking to Parliamentary Radio. We're looking at the impact of the Brexit vote in the UK. Tell us a little bit about the legal consequences of leaving the European Union. Well, the first point to make is that the the Brexit vote doesn't change anything legally. It's a referendum vote and it's uh, advisory. So the government isn't under a legal obligation to organise a Brexit. It is, of course, under a a political imperative to organise that. But for the time being, the UK remains a member state of the EU and all the EU laws which form part of domestic UK law under the European Communities Act 1972 remain in place until steps are taken to repeal that Act and steps are taken also to end the UK's membership of the EU. And so if we have laws that depend on the European Union, will those laws automatically be rescinded when we leave? That's most likely to happen. So in principle, we should leave at the same time as the legislation implementing EU law in our own domestic legal system is repealed. Uh, Those two events should, I think, in principle, take place at the same time, although there's some discussion that possibly the legislation may be repealed before we leave the EU. That, however, would place the UK in breach of its international law obligations. What will the consequences be and when will they be felt? Will it be short term? Will it be long term? So there is a procedure under the EU treaties for exiting the the Union. Article 50 of the EU treaty enables a member state to give notice that it wishes to leave. And there's a timetable. Two years are allowed to organise a Brexit in in the case of the UK. So that two-year period is meant to make it possible for the member state leaving to arrange the basis upon which it leaves, not the basis of its future trading relationship with the EU. So issues that will be dealt with in that two-year period would include matters relating, for example, to the rights of EU citizens here in the UK, I would expect that to be covered, and the rights of UK citizens living elsewhere in Europe, and certain other transitional measures. But that two-year period is a period of time during which we would remain members of the EU. And as long as we are then we have access our businesses and our, our passports. Passports themselves would, wouldn't change. The rights attached to them might change. In the short run, if we're still in the EU, then we have the right to access our businesses and our, we as citizens have the right to travel within the EU. Businesses can access the rest of the EU. We have full access to the single market and we have the right to trade equally and operate equally in the EU with citizens and businesses from other member states. But the EU treaty specifies that two years after the right to the leave is triggered, then the process must come to an end unless all the other EU member states agree to extend it. So once Article 50 notice is given, two years after that, the UK would automatically, I think, most likely cease to be a member of the EU. And at that point, there are very clear legal consequences we can no longer access the single market and we no longer benefit from equal treatment rules. Would it mean things like our equality legislation which depended on Europe subsequent to the first Equal Pay Act or that our rights at work, how would the legal implications play out in the longer term? Would we still have these rights? It's possible that we would. So this is a political issue. So it's entirely possible for the UK Parliament now being sovereign to reenact those laws. And this would be a political issue. So would Parliament decide to retain 
certain uh, maternity protections, shared parental leave, other areas of law, which are to some degree, not altogether, some degree undergirded by EU standards, laws relating to transfers of undertakings, annual paid leave. There's no reason at all why those laws should not be re-enacted. It becomes a political issue. But once we leave the EU, and if we were no longer part of the single market through the European Economic Area, the EEA, Parliament is then completely free to repeal those laws, more or less completely free. And so that constraint is lifted, yeah. And I believe there's a legal term called grandfathering. So what we might do is say that laws in place at the the point of a Brexit continue in force, sometimes called grandfathering. And so that technique could well be used to make sure that legal certainty is preserved and some of the more disruptive effects are avoided, and also that rights are protected, vested rights, some so-called acquired rights are protected. And there may be an obligation to protect, for example, the acquired rights of EU migrants who are in the UK at the moment. Under international law, we have obligations to respect the rights of people who are already living and working here from other EU member states. If we move on to the 50 trade deals that the EU has in place, people have commented on how long they take to negotiate, would we still be part of those trade deals? So the problem there is that if we leave the EU, even if then like Norway, we're part of the European Economic Area, we no longer benefit from the agreements with third countries, which the EU itself has negotiated. So on the face of it, it would appear that those deals have to be renegotiated, and that may not be a straightforward process. It certainly would be time-consuming, and we would not expect the process to be automatic. So apart from the, the need to employ many trade negotiators, we haven't needed to employ them for a long time because the EU has done it, but I, I'm sure we can get around that problem, I, th- I think so. The bigger problem is the length of time it would take to renegotiate these deals. It would go on well beyond the two years for the Brexit period, I think, but certainly on the basis of experience of how other countries have organised this process. Uh, uh, people uh, mention Canada. That's right. So I, I don't mean here countries leaving the EU, although Greenland is the only other country to have left. Well, the equivalent of their Brexit negotiation was quite elongated, and Greenland is a much smaller country, obviously, than the UK. But going back to the point about trade deals, in principle, they take a very long time to negotiate. Now, for business... I think that is potentially quite negative because for a long time people just wouldn't know what the rules were. And if we were a member of the European Economic Area, that means we've got to allow free movement of people. Right, so we could take up the Norway option. So first of all, we have to join, rejoin something called EFTA, European Free Trade Area. That's the route into the EEA, which is access to the single market without being a member of the EU. If we're like Norway, then we have to accept free movement of labour and we have to accept also free movement of capital and almost all the single market rules. We also would be expected to pay into the EU structural funds. It would be less than the £350 million a week that is being discussed. But Norway does pay a significant sum, not that different to ours in per capita terms, into the EU structural funds. Now, the advantage of being in the single market, of course, is that any disruption to existing business relationships is minimised and we can make sure, for example, that our banks and financial institutions would then be operating in mainland Europe in the same way as before. The disadvantage from the UK's position of being in the EEA, as Norway is, is that we would be accepting the free movement of labour rules and other rules, which in the context of the Brexit referendum debate have proved extremely controversial. So if the political imperative is to ensure a different free movement of labour regime, as things currently stand, it's very hard to see how we could be in the EEA and respect the Brexit vote if that's how it is to be interpreted by our political leaders. So we're up against a rock and a hard place. What about the world 
trade organisation, the WTO. So if all else fails, if we can't negotiate a free trade agreement uh, with the EU, if we don't rejoin EFTA, if we don't become part of the EEA, one other option is to enter into a customs union, so there's a single external tariff and internal free trade, Turkey has that option, but that would have to be negotiated. If nothing is done after two years and no agreement is in place to replace our membership, we fall back upon WTO rules and tariffs could then be levied on our goods as they're traded into the rest of Europe. Now, that would be a major change. Now, under WTO rules, we, we are entitled to most favoured nation treatment, so we're not beyond some legal protections, but we'd be in no better position in that situation than most third countries, and in a significantly worse position than many, many European countries and also countries like Turkey. So this would be a disadvantage when it comes to trading. The actual cost of trading would increase. There'd be tariffs levied on British goods when they're exported into the EU. And I think also, again, this goes back to the point about uncertainty. When businesses are planning for the future, not knowing what the legal regime is, whether it's basic WTO, EFTA, EEA or something else, is likely to be a significant factor affecting investment decisions. So you're going to get movement of capital? The risk is that there could be capital movement out of the UK or just firms not investing in the UK who would have previously considered that as an option. And I think it's not so much necessarily that the rules are more or less favourable. They might be less favourable to inward investment, but it's partly the uncertainty. And so the economic environment, Professor Deacon, going forward, it's very uncertain. The options that could be available to the UK economy when it leaves the EU, the EFTA agreement, the WTO, they're not quite right for the mix at the moment of the Brexiteers and the vision they've spelled out for the country. What do you think in reality is likely to happen economically? Well, the striking feature of the referendum campaign was that uh, the voters were offered a simple choice of leave or remain, but it wasn't really clear, I think, what leaving meant in the sense that we didn't know whether we would be in the single market but outside the EU, the EEA option, whether we'd be negotiating a new deal with the EU or falling back upon WTO rules or some other option, the nature of which is not yet clear. One possibility, of course, would be that we renegotiate the terms of our membership of the EU and have a further referendum. Now, that was discussed during the the Brexit campaign and we don't know whether that could be put on the table again but it would require of course the EU to want to make that kind of deal with us that's one constraint they may not wish to so from their point of view offering us a very flexible deal on membership would run the risk that other member states thinking about um, exiting yes the Netherlands next it other member states might also want that option and I guess many within the commission and the other EU governments would think that this was uh, the beginning of the end of the EU. So I think it's quite unlikely, although not impossible, but unlikely at the moment that the EU would want to offer a renegotiation of our membership. Similarly, from the point of view of the British government, for the foreseeable future, the Brexit vote will be seen as being politically binding, I think, on the UK government. And will they really want to renegotiate our entry and put this to a second vote after everything that's happened? For the moment, at any rate, no one is really suggesting this. And today, the assumption has been that we're not going to renegotiate our membership, we will be leaving. Now, that might change, and this is a political dynamic that we can't easily anticipate or predict, but there's a legal constraint here, as I say. If we're outside the EU, that's one thing, but to be outside the EEA is another serious matter. And just being outside the EU, but even being in the EEA, 
puts our trading relationships with the rest of the world at stake. So what's at risk here is not just our relationship with other European countries, but our trading relationship with the rest of the world. The jury's out. We are up against that rock in a hard place. And we've just got to wait and see and tough it out. But the options aren't clear and they're not easy. So I think what was not clear at any point in the referendum debate was what leave would really mean. I've tried to explain what the options are, and in a sense, none of them right now looks especially attractive when you think about the mix of legal and business considerations that are driving this process. Renegotiating our membership of the EU appears to be ruled out politically, and may be very hard practically because the EU may not want to do that. But being outside the EU immediately puts at risk not just trading relations within Europe, but globally. And how that is to be managed at this point remains to be seen. So you think a, a time of economic uncertainty? So it would seem incumbent upon the government to give guidance on this as soon as possible. And I think to set out a roadmap which would reduce economic uncertainty, I think that's a critical thing that has to be done at this point. Simon Deacon, we'll wait to see if that materialises over the next few weeks. Thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. Thank you, Bonnie.